Hello and welcome to the Clockwork Game Design Podcast. My name is Keith Bergun. Um, thank you so much for listening. Today I have an interview with Raf Koster, who I would guess probably nobody listening uh, to the sound of my voice right now doesn't know who Raf Koster is. He's a very well-known uh, game designer, uh, theorist, and as we talk about a little bit, also a musician. I knew he was a poet and um, had a lot of, he's a multidisciplinary sort of person. Um, and uh, I know him mostly actually through his work on Ultima Online, which we talk about a little bit. Um, but he also worked on uh, the Star Wars MMO, uh, Galaxies. Uh, he's very famous for having written uh, A Theory of Fun of Game Design. Um, very, very nice person. And uh, he just does great work and he's always a pleasure to talk to. I'm very excited for uh, his uh, next project, uh, which sounds a lot like some of the sort of simulationist RPG kind of uh, stuff that I've been talking about uh, over the last few years. And uh, yeah, so anyway, it's a good conversation. Before we get into the conversation, though, I wanted to quickly just give people a little bit of an update. Uh, I've been saying this for a little bit, but the rate of the podcast um, production is definitely going to go down. In fact, this conversation that you're hearing with Raf Koster, we did this a few weeks ago um, at an event uh, for the five-year anniversary of the Clockwork Game Design podcast. So um, we had a bunch of people come by. Um, uh, there might be one or two other interviews from there that I might want to publish at some point. They are up on, uh, a couple of them are up on YouTube. Uh, definitely check out my YouTube uh, three-minute game design channel and um, to, to listen to some of those other ones. But I'm, I may uh, publish the rest of them uh, on the podcast as well. But the bigger point is uh, the rate of the production of these podcast episodes is definitely going to go down over the next few months. And that's because uh, my release date for Gem Wizards Tactics, my turn-based tactical game, is February 9th. So uh, I have really, I'm, I'm working every day, all day, just on Gem Wizards. And there's just so much I have to do, and I'm basically working alone. So, like, there's art, and there's design, and there's programming, and there's music, and there's uh, redesign, and there's marketing stuff, and there's just so many things, and bug fixing. It's just so much. So, I mean, you know how it is making games. Um, but I, I tend to make games that are a little bit too big for one person to make. And I don't know what to say. I mean, they're the kind of games I want to play, you know? Um, so I, I don't know that I have much of a choice, but um, it is what it is. Anyways, this podcast is going to be a little bit slower production over the next uh, few months, two or three months, probably for that reason. Uh, the other thing is we're, we really need to open up the beta testing for Gem Wizards. So if you are interested in listening or playing Gem Wizards and giving me some feedback, please do let me know. Come to the Discord and let us know. We could use um, at least another five to ten uh, playtesters. So just let me know. It's basically just you come by to the Discord, say hi, say you're interested, and uh, we'll hook you up. So um, thank you so much for listening. And uh, without any further ado, check out this interview with Raf Koster. I studied uh, music theory composition in college, my first time around anyway, uh, as well. So that must be why we get along so good. <laughs> Maybe. Um, that's cool. What kind of music do you make? Do you, do you make video game music at all? I have made video game music. I did um, uh, probably uh, people on the stream never played any of the Facebook games I worked on, 
but uh, I did uh, with our team at MetaPlace. We did a couple of Facebook games, Island Life, and the second one was called My Vineyard. Mm-hmm. And I actually did the piano soundtrack that's on that was on My Vineyard. Um, long, long, long ago, if you played Ultima Nine, when you as the avatar woke up in the bed at the beginning of the game, you could turn on the clock radio, and there was like a pop rock arrangement of the of that Ultima song Stones. And I played acoustic guitar on that. Nice. Um, and uh, I did uh, I did music on a bunch of the games that we launched inside of MetaPlace as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, yeah, I've I've done it here and there. Um, Very cool. But it's you know it hasn't been like the the main thing. Sure, sure. So speaking of the main thing, I, I have a thing that I want to really talk to you about a lot, uh, which okay. I I sent you some. PMs about I sent you that article that I wrote about like simulationist RPGs. Um, so I really want to talk to you about that at some point. But first, we have to talk about Playable Worlds, which is your big project that you're working on now. And um, I'd like you to just introduce people to what that is um, and how it's going. Sure. So uh, Playable Worlds. Um, I, I, wow, you even I see the Twitch stream here. Yeah. You've you've even got the um Well actually it's funny. Frank Lance spontaneously <laughs> came on the stream just before. He just had to go. He was just here oh. and he ha- happened to send this to me. He didn't even know you were coming on. I was like, Raph is coming on the stream like in like ten minutes. And he's like, Oh man, weird. But he just sent me this. Yeah. Oh wow. Well, um yeah, so we are actually still staying pretty quiet, but there's some hints up on playableworlds.com if you are uh if you wanted to go there and basically we we have publicly said that we are in fact working on making kind of the next generation of online worlds right the 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 future of of mmos really um and you can see what yeah there you go um and you know this website is is more aimed at like possible funders and that kind mm-hmm. of thing than it is at players. We haven't talked about the game yet, but uh, for those of you who are people who ever played my other MMOs like um, Ultima Online or Star Wars Galaxies, I guess the way I'd put it is we are out to make you happy, um, and and also to just kind of try to bring MMOs into a more modern place, right? Um, you know, I've been pretty vocal about the fact that uh, it's been disappointing to see MMOs kind of confine themselves by and large to a World of Warcraft style template um, when there's so much more potential for them. And uh, you've even got the UO map hanging right next to your head back there. Oh, Perfect. yeah. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah. Uh, at some point, maybe if we have time, I can actually climb up on that bookshelf behind me. Yeah. I have the, I drew the original paper version of that map. Wow. That then was, uh, Dennis Lubay then took and turned into the version you have there. Amazing. Um, uh, and I, I have it sitting up there, but, um, yeah, basically when you look at the, when you look at the capabilities that we have today, right. The fact that. MMOs are still basically about running through quests, killing 10 rats of various sizes, um, running through pretty static in worlds and environments. Um, when we look back to how they were born, there was so much more variety and richness, right? And I like to point out that Ultima Online ran on computers less powerful than this Apple Watch. Mm-hmm. Way less powerful. So, 
Right. So <laughs> there's there's so much more headroom now that we have cloud computing to do really interesting things, right? And and by and large, we're just not doing it. And mm-hmm. so um, a big part of what we're trying to do is shift the emphasis and say, we have all of this capability. Let's use it for somewhat different purposes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of, one of the other examples I often use is, uh, you know, Ultima Online allowed you to customize houses down to the individual tile, build multiple stories, all that kind of thing. Any given player house in Ultima Online probably has more interactive objects than an entire battlefield or Fortnite match. Mm-hmm. And it came out in 1997. Yeah, right. That's true. So, I, I think this is where it ties back to the um, the stuff you were just saying about sp- the potential for simulation and whatnot. Right. It feels to me like there's a lot of headroom for us to do uh, really living worlds. Right. Uh, worlds that feel like alternate realities to a much deeper level than what we've seen right now. Um, at the same time, I think MMOs have also been stuck a little bit in a rut of being, um, you know, World of Warcraft opened them up a lot to a broader audience. They were a niche before WoW, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. A big niche that made lots of money, but still a niche. These days, kids have grown up with RuneScape. Kids have grown up with Minecraft. You know, um, I think way more people understand MMOs. But there's also people now know that even core games do not need to be as grindy, as time consuming, <laughs> right, um, as as they used to be. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's a real opportunity to modernize the MMO and kind of bring it into today's modern world for the modern gamer. Yeah. So that there's there is a um, not a rub there exactly, but there's a relationship, sort of a relationship there between the. So like I get into arguments a lot of the time, a lot of times with people who um, are skeptical of like simulationism, I guess, as a as a way of designing MMOs or RPGs. Um, and because they're skeptical of them, because I mean, frankly, a lot of them are, are just old at this point that a lot of them are just older games. Like a lot of the examples that you could point to are 10 years older or more. And so there is a lot of like kind of usability issues sometimes and like sort of awkwardness and, you know, balance issues. And, and, and I think there's something to be said for the idea of like, whatever we're making, we do want to make it a designed experience, even if it feels simulate if it is also a simulationist experience we also want it to be um really considerate of players so that's sort of what you're talking about there i think with like time and being considerate of players time um something i've been saying for a long time is that like you know ultima online by the way i just have to say is one of the most important games of my life easily um and most formative uh, games. I don't make games like that, but there's like such a huge part of my, um, you know, emotional game core that is just so wishing that I could have that experience again. Um, But at the same time, like if somebody made, I've been saying for a long time, if somebody made like my perfect MMO at this point, like would play it? Uh, You know, because there's this feeling that like they have to take a lot of time. They have to take... And I wonder if there's something fundamental about that, that they, because they are a virtual world. And if it's like, if it's a world, you have to kind of live in it a little bit. Right. Um, 
And but anyway, the, I, I'm I'm kind of scattering here about a couple different topics, but there is sort no, of no, just... no. It's it, <sighs> I mean, I think I think that point right there is is really good, right? Like like I think in today's world, when we look around at the ways in which people touch other kinds of alternate worlds, okay, which could be whatever TV show fandom, cinematic universe, manga, D&D podcast, whatever it is, okay? Sure, sure. And there's lots of examples of it, right? Yeah. Um, that what we see is that players don't necessarily need to sit there for four hours every night in order to have a a relationship with that fantasy and a relationship with that um with that world right mm. um in today's world you can connect with these things in a whole bunch of ways right and if if the heart of this alternate world really is oh it is an alternate world that is running there all the time why does that mean that you have to be online four hours at a stretch, seven days a week in order to stay in contact with it? Mm. Like that doesn't make sense. If you think about it, that's a, mm. an odd requirement. If I kind of analogize it, um, a lot of the uh, early MMOs, especially as you got into guilds, they're almost like bowling leagues that play every night. Mm. You know yeah. what I mean? Sure. It's like, no, you've got a guild, you've got a team, you've got a party, you've got a practice, you got to be together. That means you got to schedule time. Scheduling time's a pain in the ass. You've got to do it for a certain amount of time. If you're going to go on a raid, well, that's going to take this long. Oh, you know, all of those kinds of things, right? Um, and it's, uh, I don't know, this is uh, a very crunchy game design sidetrack, but it ties into that Trust Spectrum article I, uh, mm -hmm. I did with Aaron Camerato a while back, mm -hmm. which I don't know if you read, but it, that article was all about how players build trust relationships with one another. Mm -hmm. And um, it's uh, one of the things about it is that things like that require people to really kind of come together on a, it's like 7,000 words, man. Um, <laughs> your readers are not going to be able to, your viewers no, no, will not I, be able to I read just, it in parallel. I'm just but, showing, I'm um, just showing them your website. Yeah. Yeah. Well. It's, yeah. it's actually a super crunchy article, right? Um, talking about, look, some games require that kind of time investment, but the fact of the matter is there's a lot of things that people could do in a UO or a galaxies and can still do in something like a wow that are not raiding that don't involve that kind of bowling league, you know, keep up with the Joneses check in all the time kind of right. thing. Sure. Um, and in particular, I think that um, it's one of the things that the theme park style of MMO design, right? Because it's fundamentally about party-based, team-based combat, it demands that kind of investment. You can't build a good team mm -hmm. without putting in the hours, right? right? But when you look back at UO or at Galaxies, which were sandboxes, it's like um, combat and, and parties were in there, of course, but... So was crafting a player economy, dancing in the cantina, having a theater troupe, building an economic empire, you know. And today what we see is that some of the things that UO pioneered, right? I'll just mention a few. House decorating, okay? UO came out in 1997. 
right, can go out and check when The Sims came out mm -hmm. <laughs> as a cross comparison, mm -hmm. right? UO had tile based house decorating back then. Today, that is the foundation of Animal Crossing and piles of other very casually accessible, like things that don't demand tons of time. Still deep. I don't mean casual in that sense of it's a no. fluff lightweight, yeah. but you know, something that's you know easily accessible. Um there's uh things like character customization. UO was one of the first 2D games to have in-game avatar character customization, like hmm. ever. Wow. Okay. There even even in online, but even in in 2D in in single player. 2d games right it just wasn't really much of a thing hmm. in diablo all your avatars looked the same yeah right? it didn't matter what you were wearing um, yeah yeah today of course uh we take for granted that uh like there's entire mobile game genres that are just about fashion and dressing sure. your character yeah. right and obviously that means that you know it's it's not that we're trying to make that mobile game but that means that it's obviously something that fits into a mobile kind of um Play style, which means obviously it supports short sessions, less time, checking in periodically. Right. You all had farming, you know, yeah. like that became Fishing. Farmville and that whole branch. So yeah. a whole bunch of things that were in sandbox MMOs actually became the foundation of whole mobile genres and right. um, were in hindsight much more accessible. We got made fun of a lot, though, uh, hmm. right? We got made fun of for putting dancing in. Today, of course, dancing and Fortnite, it seems silly to think that dancing and video games don't go together. Mm -hmm. But back then, like, when we made Galaxies, people, like, savaged it was like us memes. for having yeah, dancing. I don't know, yeah. Yeah, and so, in hindsight, I think a lot of the things that we were doing were actually more broadly appealing than party-based combat. Um, but, you know, at the time, the audience was still just kind of core RPGers who wanted to play four hours a night. Right. And so, you know, the EverQuest World of Warcraft style was a good match. Um, but so, when I look around today, I go, wow, a lot of those players don't have as much time anymore. A lot of those players, you know, I know people who three generations of family playing Ultima Online. Mm. right and they don't all have the same amount of time right but if they can all contribute to their guild in different ways because they have different play styles and different time availability right that's why they have stuck with uo mm. whereas they wouldn't be able to do that with something like wow sure um so yeah i think there's a lot of room to to modernize the mmo in that way and really offer ways to play for different people I, I had not, so I, I have thought a lot about Ultima Online and its sort of trajectory and like what I feel like sort of happened to it over time and how, how, it, how it compared in its early days, uh, you know, in, in particularly in the beta and in the first year or so after the launch uh, and then how it progressed over time. And it's interesting to me to think like that actually maybe in a way now is more of a good time that to make a simulationist MMO uh, than it was back then, because back then, yeah, it was like the only people who knew about UO, like in my high school, I, I not one other, I knew about UO because I was like, you know, like this hardcore PC gamer type, um, but no one else I knew knew what it was really. Uh, it was not a 
like a super popular thing in the common. And so now what we have is we have those hardcore gamer types who just want to do the quests and get the, you know, uh, sort of want to use it as like a strategy game almost. Uh, they can be sort of like, they can play something else, you know, like there's lots of options for them. Uh, and, and, or they can play this too, but I'm just saying like, yeah, the, 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 it might, I guess what you're saying is now might be a better time for this kind of thing than back in uh, 97 or I guess 2003 was uh galaxies or somewhere around there. Yeah. Oh, three. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think there, there's a couple of things there, right? Like it's easy for us to get how, how much the world has changed too. So as a great example, the, um, you mentioned, oh, who else in my school maybe knew about UO or whatever. Yeah. Ultima Online was the fastest selling boxed game in EA history. Wow. Okay. Huh. But the scale of the world has changed so much, <laughs> right? True. The fastest selling moved, it, it sold a couple hundred thousand boxes mm -hmm. in the space of a couple of months. That was crazy fast back then. I see, Today, I see. a hit game might do that in the first like day or few hours even. Mm -hmm. So the scale of the world is just different. We had to design that for a, um, you know, UO was designed. It We had to run on a 14.4 modem. We preferred a 28.8 modem. Mm -hmm. Let's say that you were a supremely well-connected gamer and had a 28.8 modem. So that means that your typical internet connection, let's say you just have like a cable internet connection at home. Like I actually had a 33.6. Uh, just yeah, you, that yeah but, but let's, yeah, let's say that today you, you're, you're a gamer who uses cable, you know, cable internet or whatever. Mm -hmm. That means that you only have 17,000 times more bandwidth. Right. Okay. <laughs> Think about that. Holy crap. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, um, yeah, it's just a really, really different world today. Um, mm -hmm. So I think uh, there are lots of points of evidence that this the time is ripe. If you go looking around, for example, um, first of all, like uh, we can even look at proof points because even though WoW came into PC gaming, mainstream PC gaming kind of just sucked the oxygen out of the MMO space and yeah. everything became WoW-like. If you actually look outside of mainstream PC gaming, okay, um, RuneScape was originally born as a UO clone. Hmm. Like, you can go ask the Jagex guys. They will tell you. Huh, interesting. Yes, we wanted that. to clone UO, but do it in Shockwave and put it on the web. Right. And RuneScape is a monster. Like Moonscape is a hugely popular for you know decades now. Yeah, it's 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 not a small game and right. reached many many millions of of, of users. Um, another game that people don't think of as um, sort of a child of UO, but which absolutely is, is Minecraft. Mm. Okay, so there's even a direct line of descent there because. Um, you know, the UO worked with an abstract property system for that simulation layer, uh -huh. right? And uh, all crafting was based on combining properties 
that were attached to the objects. Okay. Right. So you could use anything that represented wood in order and attach it to ingots of metal in order to make an axe or whatever. Uh-huh. Right. Um, that abstract property stuff was core to how you all worked. Well, there was an MMO that people, uh, a bunch of ex RuneScape people started making. It was super hardcore called Worm Online. It's still around. Huh. And, um, it was sort of, oh, how do we continue that kind of design thread? Mm-hmm. And that same, uh, of course, one of the people working on that was Notch. And huh. if you look at, at, at Minecraft's like crafting system, it's basically just like UOs. Oh, interesting. Um, so, yeah, so there's a line of descent there that kind of validates the idea that, wait a minute, actually, these other ways to play are hugely popular. Hmm. Um, you know, a lot of people like them. Yeah, I and I find that that uh, I mean I I think that there's something that's happened uh, in games generally where um, that that you're talking about it as like wow having sucked up all the space, but I think what but there's actually a, a like a higher level I would say a problem, uh, but but you know it's not necessarily entirely a problem, but the the idea of um, games being more and more uh, sort of uh, like content delivery mechanisms uh, very much on these like, uh, you know, metrics, metrics based design and retention based design. And uh, a lot of these things that are just like, this is what happens when you have like, you know, uh, just a, it's like a, a market and certain things are going to just uh, kind of like pierce that more strongly and sort of dominate and become these. And then everyone copies that. And so you get this like effect of everybody kind of making these, in this case, it would be like the wow likes, but then in the mobile space, you have like these kind of gotcha things, which I think as of as also similar. And I see that like kind of that like gotcha-ism is, is how I would describe uh, what has happened with many genres, not just uh, MMOs. Um, I'm, I'm personally more interested for some reason that I can't quite place in uh, single player simulationist RPGs. And so I've like uh, my, some of my favorite things have been like the older fallout games and uh, you know, the older elder scroll games. Um, And, uh, and I feel, I find that those also have been more like Diablo fied or wowified. And um, so I guess my, my question and, and the thing that I'm concerned about, I guess is if if your if if playable worlds isn't like sufficiently gotchafied, uh, how does it survive? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, oh, how does, I, is there a yeah, space for wow, that? Wow, that's a pointed question, man. <laughs> are are you going to ruin the game? No. Um. So I let me break. I think there's two separate things there to to pull apart, and maybe maybe I can um talk about them in order. The first is what I would almost call the um you know that what you call that that uh i i often call it stagecraft okay but it's sort of uh i think of it as from a design point of view this is supposed to be a game design podcast right so sure um if we think about this from a design point of view i often oppose simulation and stagecraft and by stagecraft what i'm trying to conjure up is the stuff that magicians do where they make you think something's going on where it isn't mm. it's 
things like the props in theater that look like that's a real tree. But if you're standing next to it, you go, oh, wait a minute, that's a 2D piece of cardboard. But if you're far enough away, it it sells you, right? right. And especially single-player narrative games are about the art of stagecraft, okay? And I think it's important, right? Like, as designers and as professionals, we can have preferences towards one end or the other of this, right? But I think it's important we acknowledge both are goddamn hard. Sure. And there's, you know, there's an art to it and all the rest of it, right? So this is not in any way a knock against one approach or another. And for different kind of artistic visions in your game, you should use the tool that makes sense, right? Yeah. Um, and in the case of um, something like WoW, one of its huge triumphs was the way in which it applied stagecraft to what had been a really open-ended, uh, you know, a really open-ended yeah. uh, kind of thing. Herbivore, I'll get to part two. Just give me a minute. <laughs> um, so <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's for the chat there. Um, so I think the biggest innovation that WoW had was actually that they handheld you through every single level of the game with handcrafted quest. Right. Nobody before WoW could afford to do that. WoW outspent every other MMO on the market by a factor of four to five. Yeah, yeah. Like, wow. no joke. Like, they Jeez. literally outspent everybody by four to 400%, 500%. Yeah. Massive, massive amount of money relative to the competition. Nobody else could have made that many quests. They didn't have the budget to do it. Sure. Um, the fact that Blizzard thought that way is because Blizzard had come from a very narrative tradition, a very, um, you know, uh, not necessarily just single player, but limited multiplayer narrative campaigns kind of tradition, right? So it's um, it's it's a natural evolution. If that's the line you come from, that's what you do. Right. I believe you can stack stagecraft on top of simulation. Mm -hmm. I think it is next to impossible to stack simulation on top of a stagecraft world. Mm. Okay. And I think it, because you can have simulation going, which is fundamentally about emergence and drop quest lines on top of it. But if you build a game out of quests and then let players do freeform player housing or something like that, they're going to, break your carefully crafted experience right right so yeah so that's the the um i th it feels to me like a huge amount actually of the current of what we're seeing today in games with all the shifts from games as a service and content driven games and all of that kind of thing is partly a culture shift where studios that are fundamentally they they they've come up doing stagecraft work. Mm. It's what they know. It's the tools they apply. And when they're suddenly in a game as a service environment, where um, which doesn't imply a business model, right? It it just implies um, kind of ongoing ongoing delivery, entertaining on a regular basis. You know all of those sorts of things. Doing ongoing content delivery is 
freaking expensive. It's freaking slow. It's challenging, yeah. right? Which is why online games have historically leaned towards other tools on the bench, including simulation, including PvP, including um, uh, you know other forms of storytelling like episodic storytelling or, or etc. Right. So that's part one, right? Like I I don't think that. Basically, that's why I see so many studios having trouble turning a corner. Okay. Okay. Second, to to get back to your your pointed monetization question, right? Um, and uh, we'll answer this just for for herbivore. Am I dodging the question of how I protect the game from capitalism? Um, you know, I mean, we live and breathe capitalism. I can't make the game without capitalism, unfortunately. Um, that's it's it's too big a game to make without uh, money coming in. That's mm-hmm. just how it is. Sure. In fact, running uh, running live games in general, uh, the costs of running big games can't be underestimated. It costs mm-hmm. a lot. That's why MMOs, um, you know, originally online games charged by the minutes, right? <laughs> It used to be that if you were an online game aficionado, you had a bill in the thousands of dollars a month. And the cost of that has come down and down and down. UO was one of the pioneers of the flat rate subscription fee for an Mm -hmm. online game. MMOs are also to blame for free-to-play. Okay? That business model was born out of MMOs. Um, Hmm. uh, some of the pioneers were actually text muds were doing it first. Mm-hmm. Um, and also of course, uh, MMO spinoffs in South Korea in particular. Okay. And it was partly inspired by the fact that players were spending thousands of dollars on, um, eBay markets, buying and right. selling UO houses. Uh, that was actually part of the inspiration originally for, um, for, uh, free to play. Developers started going, wait a minute, if aftermarkets can do this, we should cut out the middleman and just sell stuff directly, yeah, right? Yeah. That, that's where some of that came from. Um, you know, it, I think it's important to sever just the metrics piece from the business model, from the service piece, right? Because, um, first of all, metrics... It is easy to be a slave to metrics, mm-hmm. but every game designer I know thinks playtesting is a good thing. Metrics is just another way to gather playtest data. Right, sure. Right? And in fact, MMOs were one of the pioneers of game metrics precisely because they were one of the first connected game genres. Yeah. So it was possible for the first time. Right. Like I could pull up graphs from Legend Mud in 1993 where I could show you how many monsters of each level were being killed by what level player, right? Beat maps, basically. Yeah, yeah, basically, right? So that we could go, oh, look at this. Level sevens are underpowered or whatever. Right. Um, so the the problem with metrics is when you don't know how to ask the right questions. You become what you measure. Mm. And so if you measure bad things, your game will go in a bad direction. Or you design in such a way that around being measurable. Do you know what I mean? Like you design. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like, not everything's quantifiable, and not everything's necessarily quantifiable in in the most obvious way. Right. A great example of this: it took a really long time to persuade big corporations that community management was net profitable rather than being a cost sink. Mm. 
Okay. Interesting. For a really long time, companies thought, well, I'm paying for commu- I'm paying for forum bandwidth and I'm paying for moderators and the mod the forums look like a cesspit. <laughs> and <laughs> you know, that's negative marketing dollars as far as I'm concerned, right? Yeah. And it took a lot of digging to eventually establish a way of measuring it that made people realize, oh wait, the number one predictor of retention is actually community participation. And the number one predictor of revenue is retention. And today we know that and everybody runs communities, right? But back then there was a time period where people didn't know that. So not being able to ask the right questions can just really mess you up and Mm. and lead you in poor directions with metrics. Um, Another way to put it is, uh, this is the, the design geeky way to put it rather than the business hat way, is... Metrics are great for finding local maxima. Mm-hmm. They're terrible at finding new space. Sure. Right? So good for optimizing something, but they're lousy at telling you, I'm climbing the wrong hill in the first place. That actually takes intuition, designer intuition. Creativity. Designer knowledge, right? Yeah. Um, so we're not talking about our business model yet. Are we going to have one? Yeah, we are. Um, do we want as many people as possible to play the game? Absolutely. Am I a fan of exploitative, money-grubbing, unethical business practices? Hell no, I sure, am sure. not. Yeah. And um, I am a believer that if you build a great, rela- a great relationship with the player, one built on honesty, they will know and understand the value of what they're getting for their dollar. Mm-hmm. And they will know and understand maybe even why something costs this much to add mm-hmm. and why the costs are what they are. And, um, you know, if if you build that kind of a relationship and can make a, a game or an entertainment experience into somebody's real hobby, then, I mean, you're an idiot if you can't make money off of it, mm-hmm. right? Like you should be able to make money off of that mm-hmm. and the player should feel like it's a fair trade right yeah i mean or you're providing a, a service you know you're yeah. you are literally doing labor to create this thing and uh yeah. it makes sense yeah no i i'm, I'm not yeah. i'm and, also not against making money off games obviously i'm in the yeah. same business well but yeah but what i mean is i i think that holds true for any business model mhm there are people out there who do free-to-play ethically, and there are people who do it badly. Yeah. There are people out there who do subscriptions ethically, and people who do it badly. Sure. There are people out there who do one-time box purchases ethically, and people who do it badly, right? Yeah. A good example, like, think about something like a box game, right? Yeah. A box game, we try to get you to fork over a stack of dollars in advance without knowing whether you're going to like it. Right, sure, sure. And so we, you know, and this is where terms like bullshot from fake marketing screenshots came from, right? Mm. Like, we all know there's a really long tradition of making the outside of that box look as awesome as possible. And then when you actually get into the game, it doesn't quite actually deliver that. Yeah. But then, oh, no, too late. We got your 60 bucks, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah. was a video game business for decades. Sure, man, sure, right? yeah. And so there's a case to be made that, no, 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 try it for free and only pay me if you like it is more ethical oh, if no. done right. I, 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 so, 
I, I, I've never been really against free to play specifically or any particular model. Um, I'm, I don't really know anything about business to be honest with you. Um, and, uh, and I'll so, stop talking business. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, it's very interesting because I am technically doing business. I just don't know anything about it. Um, but I, so I'm always interested to hear and learn more about that. But my question is more about like, um, like, uh, things like, leveling up and random rewards and getting players like hooked in in terms of um you know like sort of skinner box uh style mechanisms that's been to me that's that is also a thing distinct from the you know the old simulationist idea of the rpg of course rpgs have always had like leveling up and loot and things like that right but but i also feel like that has been just amped up, amped up so much, um, particularly in mobile games, but also in like I feel I feel like Diablo actually was like a was a big spike uh, because of it. It created that like go into the dungeon, click on a bunch of stuff, get a bunch of random things, and bring it back. That loop that's just so addictive. And I wonder if you um, if you think about that sort of addiction versus uh, uh, engagement or like um, you know engaging in a fantasy of some sort or, or, or whatever, yeah. whatever's not addiction. <laughs> uh, yeah. and yeah. So, um, this is something I've, I've actually written and talked about a lot, right? Um, for those viewers who don't know, I wrote a book called a theory of fun, um, which was all about what is it that drives fun in human psychology and why is it that we find things to be fun? There it is. And, yeah, that's first edition now. There's a full color second edition out now. Um, there's also a theory of fun ten years later uh, talk and video, which people could go find, and it actually specifically talks about that. Um, I'll, I'll skip to the the punchline uh, at the end, kind of the the conclusion of what fun is. It's fundamentally games are hijacking a reward loop in the human brain which is uh, designed to reward us for curiosity because being curious about stuff and wanting to learn new things is frankly a lot of work um, and it's hard. And so if, if, if we didn't have sort of an intrinsic reward loop for it, we probably wouldn't do it. And in fact, even with the loop, we tend not to do it. Right. Um, and a lot of things in the world hijack that reward loop, right? And there's all kinds of um, there's all kinds of niceties around what things press the button right and why and da 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 da, all of that kind of thing. But uh, a great example of things that hijack the reward loop without actually having you learn anything, a slot machine is probably the ultimate example of it right? The yeah. correct lesson to learn from a slot machine is walk away, right? And sure. I always use this example, um, you know, sort of a simple human computer interaction loop kind of thing that um, specifically tailored towards games that I call game grammar, which is sort of a way of decomposing games and game systems. If you think of it as we have an input, this will be my icon for input. Sure. Okay. That's good. And you have an input, you identify like, I've got a, I will have a goal, I formed a goal, I've got an intent, let me check for an affordance, is there something I can push or press or do something to? Okay, I found something, I'm going to use my input and click, 
now it goes into my next uh, handy aid here. It goes into the black box. Uh-huh. And the whole point is you don't know what is in the black box. Right. There's a whole bunch of algorithm in here, but the player doesn't know what it is, right? But they do something and they get a piece of feedback out of it, right? Mm -hmm. So they press the button, it machinery works, and boing! Here's the sparkly bit of feedback. Yay! It's all colorful. Hurrah! I feel good because I got a pat on the back with a cool ching sound effect and whatever. Uh Look at that. My little cloud burst went off. Those colors, yeah, sure. Okay. What does a slot machine do? A slot machine goes, click, boing! Like, there's no black box there to speak of, right? Well, sort of. The little spinny things, I, I suppose, you could say is the black box. But maybe well, not. Well, it's, yeah. it's actually a black box designed not to teach you anything. It's a, it's a black box that relies on a psychological trick called apophenia, where um, this is a human brain bug that leads us to believe that there are patterns when there aren't any. Sure. Okay. Yeah. And all of, you know, all forms of gambling are based in part on seeing patterns where there aren't any. But here's the thing. Real gameplay is based on seeing patterns where there are patterns (laughs) and slowly figuring out the black box and kind of removing the cover from it until at the end you see the gears moving and you go, oh, right. And so that to me is is at the heart of what games are. It's why shallow gamification is a lie. Just throwing points at you, throwing badges at you without learning anything doesn't you know, that's not games, right? It's a hijacking. Um, so the, the problem is, right? Like, how do you... How You can't say, take away this tool, because without this tool, the player can't learn. Right. They need this. Sure. Otherwise, it's like, I, I think this example is in the book. If you pressed a button while playing Tetris, and the piece rotated to a random position, you can't get better at Tetris. Right. Right? Like, there's no... There needs to be a certain amount of predictability for you to learn, right? And at the same time, you can't get rid of randomness because I think of the black box as a machine, Uh but another way to think of it, and this is super mathy, but you can think of it as a math function, right? F of X. Okay. And game content is different X's to put through the math. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Okay. Yeah. And so that is why we can make Tetris variations with more pieces, less pieces, different speeds, different size boards, right? All of those kinds of variants, Mm -hmm. a different level in Mario is content that is just different numbers to push through the same system. Yeah. Right? The more numbers you push through a system, the easier it is to figure out what the system does. Uh And that is a huge reason why a game like Diablo uses randomness, why we use random roles in RPGs, right? Because they increase the landscape without needing to actually make a bigger machine, right? So it's hard for us to draw a line and say, this is now too random. 
or draw a line and say, this is now too trivial a box, a black mm -hmm. box. Um, and that's why it's actually really worrisome that lawyers and legislators and whatnot are saying, oh, we're going to ban loot boxes or something, because I'm worried that they will not know where to draw that line. Mm. And in the process of killing loot boxes, they'll kill the wandering monster spawn or something <laughs> right. that is also a random roll That's out of true. a possible set yeah uh, right because it's it's a game design subtlety at that point it's not an easy cut to make so it is these are tools and i strongly believe this these are crazy powerful tools that rewire human brains and therefore must be used ethically right strongly believe that um but, uh, and that means, you know, if you're using brain hacks to extract dollars, then screw you. Like, that's not good. Yeah. It's a dark pattern. It's sure. exploitative. A key part of my philosophy of games is that you are building your artistic constructs in order to provide a, a learning to players. Even if that learning is just how to dodge 2D bullets in a shmup, right? Mm -hmm. You are providing learning. They are they are playing with your toy in order to master a system. Yeah. And if to me the betrayal is when there's no system to master, then you're just screwing with the player. And that that to me is the bridge too far. Right. Yeah. I and I I, I couldn't agree more. Um and I also wonder i i i guess i wonder what we were talking earlier about um like the aestheticizations of certain kinds of fun so for example like uh if you if you have a fighting game or if you have a uh tactics game or if you have an mmo um these things have all been uh aestheticized like when people consider them fun or not that is based on like what they've played in the past largely and um and so my concern, and this is something a concern that I have for all kinds of games, actually. Um, I'm making a tactics game right now, and I am concerned that uh, it won't hook people, partially because uh, they are very aestheticized with something like uh, uh, the, the mobile Fire Emblem game, which is like largely a gotcha game with a very small little tactics kind of veneer a little bit. Uh, you know what I mean? And so... Uh, I guess my concern and my or the thing that I'm I was trying to get at more specifically is is just like how does a modern MMO um how does an, a modern MMO I mean I guess maybe we have examples I I'd like to hear you talk a little bit about um do you have any thoughts on Eve online uh and how that fits into this sort of this rubric because that's definitely like not a wow like right like no um, it's not and yeah uh actually it's a it's a, it's another one that if you talk to uh, the original Eve folks, they will tell you that they set out to make UO in space. Mm. That was I, their original like yeah. vision statement. It seems like um, it. yeah, yeah. Um, I think uh, you know Eve Online is a great example of of very much building something systemic, right? Um, it still has a pile of random elements in it, right? Like those are still all over the place. Sure. I think that um, definitely not all games came from UO, No More Birds. I'm, I'm positive <laughs> about that. Um, I think that uh, I think the question of whether or not a given developer or um, publisher or whatever 
is is building their business model in a particular way, right? First, other people out there in the genre can definitely kind of like ruin the swimming pool for everybody, right? Like mm. that is absolutely a thing that can happen. Interesting. And I think we've seen that happen in in several times. I think a second thing though is of course the pushback from the player base can result in correcting, even overcorrecting. And I do have faith that eventually you know that um basically it's a slow motion negotiation between players and businesses can land someplace right mm -hmm. someplace good i do believe that um you know every time somebody gets over exploitative you get somebody saying i'm going to make a pile of money by offering a flat fee game and <laughs> right and then people flock to it and then they start getting tired of paying a flat fee and somebody comes you know you can play for free i just won't be as aggressive about the upsells as mm -hmm. those guys were and you know the market kind of corrects um I but i think i think the other thing that is just best practice is being more transparent with with your user base and being upfront about what people get and why they get it and you know that um I, it feels to me like that's kind of independent of genre right mm -hmm. um the question of how polluted the pool is is sort of a business decision that you have to make up front and say wow is this like how sensitive is the audience to this at this point what kinds of promises do I need to make? But fundamentally, and I think we see this with, um, I mean, I, you know, gosh, there's so many examples, especially among smaller indies of, of game companies that run ongoing services. Like I think of Clay Games and the Don't Starve Games. I think mm -hmm. of uh, Spry Fox. I think of so many others that have done free-to-play stuff and nonetheless gamers love them <laughs> right like sure. there's models out there of you can do this right right yeah oh yeah um so i think so much of it is about building a trust relationship again i i always come back to that right yeah um i also wanted to ask you i don't know why i want i guess you know i guess because you worked on now which ultima games you worked on you said you worked on well, ultima 9 and uh uo but uh, you not really oh I, okay um uh i ultimate nine development was happening at the same time that ultima online development was i see and um there was a there was a recording studio on the first floor of the building and they were often idle and so they actually had this program whereby anybody at origin could sign up and get 24 hours of free studio time so ah. i actually went down there and recorded an album um which your viewers can find, by the way, on Spotify or Amazon. Oh, or nice. Um, yeah, it's out there. It's from 99. Um, cool. It's called After the Flood. Um, I'm much better now, by the way, I'll say. Uh, anyway, um, and that meant that the guys in the studio, who was all the, our audio designers and composers and whatnot there, knew that I played. And that's why they said oh, hey, those acoustic guitar arrangements, could you do one of Stones? Oh. And so that's actually my only contribution to any other Ultima game. Oh, is okay. That. Um, so, I, no, I worked on Ultima Online, and I was um, uh, the creative lead uh, for Ultima Online. At the uh, you know, My wife and I, actually, a huge amount of Ultima Online is based on our job application design sample that we sent in when we applied for the job. Huh. Um, and uh, we showed up on the first day and they told us, 
Wait, you both applied for the job together or something? Actually, or? we were. Uh, so uh, the story is um, when uh, when Richard Garriott and Star Long managed to get funding out of EA, uh-huh. they went out there uh, to go find first a programmer who could help them build a prototype. And they found a guy named Rick Delishmit, who's one of the truly, truly important MMO developers of all time. Um, unsung hero because he's he he doesn't do press or anything he you know um and he was a guy uh who uh who played and made muds specifically he made them with myself and my wife and his girlfriend at the time uh who was a classmate of ours from college so the four of us were friends okay and we all worked on a mud called legend mud uh first we played a mud called worlds of carnage then we worked on a mud called legend mud and um he got this gig through this you know my he ended up working for a shareware company and his application to the shareware company was an adaptation of a board game design i had done and that ended up being my first game credit actually was the shareware board game for morafware if you have any really old school pc shareware folks around mm-hmm. and then um Morafware got approached by Origin to do contract work on a different game, um, Bioforge. And oh, I know Rick Bioforge. Was, yeah, I played and that. So, yeah, so Rick was talking about Bioforge with Star, who was the AP on Bioforge, and um, they got to talking, what would you really like to make? And Rick said, well, I make MUDs. I want to make online worlds. And Star said, funny that. And so Rick ended up making the first prototype of what was then called Multima for Star. That was, um, he actually put a server backend on Ultima 6 and made like this Orcs versus Humans hot potato game, basically. And then that turned into the actual Ultima online project. And uh, there were a bunch of other folks there uh, in the mix early on uh, that including Jim Greer, who went on to found Congregate, lots of other folks. But um, uh, the bottom line is they then said to Rick, we need designers. Do you have any to recommend? And of course, he recommended the two who had been working with him on Legend Mud, my wife and I. I see. Uh, So Kristen and I ended up sending in our applications for that. Um, And we included in that, they sent a bunch of... um, like they sent us code sample tests and stuff, and we uh, were like, "Yes, we." You know, they sent us code samples and find the bug, and we wrote back, "We're pretty sure the bug you mean is this missing parentheses here." That said, this is a terrible architecture for an online game. This should be an event-driven system with messages, with trigger events that fire, because otherwise this won't be scalable. This whole thing needs rearchitected this way, right? Um, they were all single-player game architects right so Hmm. the code example was actually like one of the examples was a a light and a switch and the way it worked was that every loop of the game the light checked the state of the switch to see if it was off or on right 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 which is a very old school main loop single loop kind of way of doing Mm -hmm. things how i would probably like no 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 this needs to be and a use event fires on the light switch. And when you use it, it fires an event on the light and the light receives a message and changes state. And then this takes like two microseconds, right? right. Like, you know, and uh, anyway, so uh, 
The other thing we sent in was they asked us for quest samples. We sent them huge quests because the quests we'd written on Legend Mud were like the size of entire text adventures. Um, but at the end of it, we said, but that's not how we would do this anymore. We would do something much more simulationist. Mm. Imagine if every object had abstract properties behind it. Imagine if, and we laid out a whole design for it and we both got hired um, mm. and we show up on the first day and we ask, so what's the game? And they said, oh, it's going to be great. Imagine if every object had abstract properties. And we went, oh, shit. Because it was then we kind of realized that the game was going to be built around our ideas. Mm -hmm. And you got to understand that we were like 23. Wow. 20, okay. We were <laughs> just about that whole team was kids. We were wow. all like the median age was early 20s. The so oldest people on the team, right? Like, what, what it, role did Richard Garriott play on that project? He was like, the executive producer and headed the the studio. Okay, so did he? But he wasn't like in there, you know, like in the nitty gritty making design decisions, really, or very rarely. He, I see. Um, I see. He uh, he laid out, you know, obviously a bunch of big vision things, but he was the executive producer. Gotcha. gotcha. Star was actually the game director. Uh -huh. And Star didn't tend to be down deep in the game design. I see. Um, we had several folks who were Ultima designers from a single-player background. And um, it was a real challenge, uh, honestly, uh, <laughs> working together. It, it got pretty contentious uh, at times. And uh, you can actually find, uh, if people are willing to go on Quora.com, there's actually what was origin culture like during the development of Ultima Online that mm. has a whole bunch of answers from myself and other programmers who were there at the time, right? Um, but uh, the core of the team was mostly MUD developers okay. who were all some fresh out of high school. I huh. Like the youngest person on the team was 17. Wow. Um, and uh, most of us, you know, there I think there was like a 27-year-old, but most of us were in early twenties at most. Um, so yeah, it was, a it was a, a naive team and we didn't know that we were proposing a whole bunch of impossible stuff. Mm -hmm. And in the end we pulled out, managed to pull off actually building a bunch of impossible stuff because mm -hmm. we didn't know it was impossible. Right. Um, so yeah, it was kind of a crazy thing, but that's, that's kind of the story there, how that got started. Well, that's that. Like I said, it was such a huge part of my uh, my gaming uh, like uh, formational, you know, foundation as a player of games. And uh, so I'm really excited about Playable Worlds. Um, I'm really Me excited too. to hear more about it. Um, when when do you think we'll hear more and see more about it? We should be going public with more information next year. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, I'm super pumped. Uh, what can people look at or go to? Plug some stuff. If, um, so aside from going to look at, uh, you know, if you're on the Playable Worlds website, we have actually given multiple cryptic hint dropping interviews that you can find under the news block. So if you're curious on that kind of side, there is a, a fairly inactive, barely born Reddit that you can find. It's our Playable Worlds. So people can go hang out there. Um, and there is a link there to a Discord. Um, so there is a Playable Worlds MMO unofficial Discord. And um, I hang out there. Um, so if you really want to get the absolute, you know, freshest news, I hang out there and chat with folks. 
it's not real big yet because there's we haven't talked about game stuff yet. But if people are curious, that's probably the place to go. And we have a lot of high-level design discussions there right now. But um, I will say that once we open up, we do intend to do open community development. It's something that I've always done. You know, on UO, we were out there on IRC with players every week. We called it the House of Commons, right? Uh, we'd gather together and do open IRC chats. I used to blog uh, like on a regular basis for the user base, hang out on the forums. In Star Wars Galaxies, we pioneered the whole patch notes process with, here's the features that we're thinking about doing, and here's the design doc. Rip it to pieces for us, please. Mm. Um, so, yeah, you know, I've always been a believer in in that and intend to carry that forward with the community as we proceed to building it. That sounds super awesome. And um, yeah, thank you so much for coming on the show uh, today, Raph. I, I got to go on to sure, my next guest. It's always guest. a pleasure to chat. Of course, and, of course. Uh, I don't know if you heard, but one of those board games you played. Oh. It's one of those board games that yeah. you played with me at GDC is coming out from WizKids in February. Oh, awesome. Well, definitely so, uh, keep me posted yeah. about that. I'll check it out. Yeah, it, it's uh, called Waddle. It's penguins, so they waddle. Okay. Um, so, yeah. Cute. Awesome. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, thank you so much, Raph. Cool. And I will. Sure thing. Always a pleasure.